0: Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others.
1: Well, we're going to be walking through uh, Romans 5 again today as we continue our series called Salvation Spaces. And the word we're unpacking today is the word Reconciliation. And with that word, the image we're using to help us get our arms around that is the image of a battlefield, uh, that we were at war against God, and yet he has done what was necessary to bring reconciliation. And so for, because of that imagery, Whitney's made this painting here, you can see, of a flag, of, a white flag, a flag of surrender, uh, because Jesus has done what is necessary to end the battle, and for that reason, we can surrender to him. And trust in him as he makes us new and makes all things new as well. And as we were first putting this series together and thinking about these images to pair with each passage of scripture, each word that is connected to our salvation, to our life in Christ, we uh, talked about a lot of different things for each and every week. But one of the images that came to my mind as we were first talking about this idea of reconciliation was uh, a sculpture Uh, That represents reconciliation. That shows up in some pretty prominent places around the world. You can see it up on the screen there. You might be able to tell uh, that that is an image, a sculpture of a man and a woman both on their knees in an embrace. And this sculpture is is simply called reconciliation. And so you can see how I connected the dots between this sculpture and the sermon for today. Uh, But this sculpture was made by the the artist uh, Josefina de Vasconcelos, and I've been working all week on pronouncing that name. But uh, this sculpture she made after the conclusion of World War II. Uh, She had heard a story, uh, if my research is right, she had heard a story of a woman traveling across Europe after the end of World War II on foot so that she might find her husband to be reunited with him. And yet, as you probably know or can imagine, In the aftermath of World War II in Europe, there was far more that needed to be reconciled than one man and one woman being reunited together. The entire globe had been at war, nations were left in tatter. Sure, the conflict had ended, but there needed to be healing, there needed to be reconciliation. And a sculpture like this was designed with the intent in mind to represent what that healing, that reconciliation over the next few years and beyond would look like and today you can find casts of this sculpture at the ruins of the coventry cathedral in england which was destroyed during the bombing of world war II. you can find a cast of it in the peace park in hiroshima japan where the atomic bomb was dropped and you can find it at a memorial to the berlin wall in germany three places that experienced tremendous suffering tremendous conflict three places that needed a representation of a hope for the future, of a hope for reconciliation, a hope for healing. And As we've been making our way through this series that we've called Salvation Spaces, uh, we've been camped out in uh, the book of Romans as a whole, but especially Romans chapter 5 for the last couple weeks here, as we've been thinking through words that are connected to the life we have in christ and looking at passages of scripture and images that help us get our arms around what those terms mean and if you were here last week you know we talked about the term justification this legal term that says that because of sin we stood before our god guilty and yet when his gavel came down we were allowed to go free we were justified we were made right with him not because we did anything to deserve it but because of what jesus has done for us and in light of that, in the passage we looked at last week, the first five verses of Romans chapter 5, Paul walks through what that means for us now. That because we've been made right with God, we are able to stand in grace. And the fact that we stand in grace means that we, when we encounter pain and suffering in this life, it is not the end of the story. It is an opportunity to be formed more deeply into the image of Jesus. All because of this hope we have in the gospel. This is all available because of what Jesus has done. As he died on the cross and rose from the dead so that we might be made right with God. And with this imagery of reconciliation, we're going to pick up in Romans chapter 5, right where we left off last week. Because as you read through this chapter, you will probably notice that those two terms, justification and reconciliation, are really intertwined. And that seems to be intentional and important because I think what take those two terms together that clarify one another really well Uh, justification is legal imagery it says there's been a ruling and you have been declared not guilty reconciliation is relational imagery saying that there was conflict but now that has been healed and I think we need both of those images together to get our arms around what Jesus has done for us Uh, he has done something legal There were serious charges that had been levied against us and there was nothing we could do on our own to get ourselves off the hook and yet Jesus has done what is necessary to make us right with God. But it's not just a matter of receiving a judge's ruling. We've also been reconciled to that judge himself, brought back into a right relationship with him. And when we take justification and reconciliation together, we start to get a sense of how serious the problem is And how rich of a life God desires for us after the problem has been dealt with. Because if all we get is justification, if all we get is a legal ruling, then sure, we've been made right, but we have a decision that may or may not affect us, really. And if all we have is reconciliation, this relationship that's been healed, we might not know for certain if the problem has been resolved. But when we have both together, we find the life with God that we need, the life with God that he desires for us. We needed to be justified before God because he had a real case against us and we needed reconciliation with God because we were at war against him. We were on the battlefield. We had taken up arms against, against God himself as his enemy. And that might sound like an overstatement of the situation. I mean, maybe you think back to your own life before you followed Jesus. Maybe you think of a friend or a coworker, or a family member, a neighbor, or something that doesn't, Follow Jesus. Maybe you don't follow Jesus yourself right now and you're thinking about that and you think, I mean, I I mean, it's not that bad of a situation. I mean, sure, I'm a better person now than before I followed Jesus, but I mean before I followed Jesus, it's not like I kicked puppies or something. You you might look at your friend, your neighbor, your coworker, and you think, I mean, sure, they're they're they don't follow Jesus, but I mean they're they're a nice guy. Sure, I've got some things in my own life I should probably clean up or something like that, but but I mean, I'm not at war against God. And yet that's the imagery that gets used by Paul in this passage. We were at war against him, and yet he has ended the battle. He didn't end the battle by destroying us. He ended the battle by making us his children. Jesus has ended the battle so that we might be reconciled when we surrender to him. We see that in this passage. I want to read Romans 5, verses 6 to 8 for us. Paul says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul gives us a a truth about what God has done for us there in verse 6, and then spends verses 7 and 8 fleshing out how what God has done for us is so drastically different from what we might normally expect. And the truth in verse 6 is, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's what we've been unpacking. We had sinned against God. We were the ungodly. We were in opposition to him. We were powerless. We were under the reign of sin and death. We were on a course to remain there for the rest of our existence, yet we did not. At just the right time, when we needed it most, Christ died for us, for the ungodly. That word ungodly was used back in chapter 1, verse 18, to describe the things that bring about God's wrath. In 118, Paul said the wrath of God comes about against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. And you might remember that we mentioned that that word wickedness really means unrighteousness because Paul's setting up a contrast there. He's saying that God is righteous, humanity is unrighteous, and that fact creates a rub, it creates tension, and humanity's rejection of God brings about his anger God looks out over His creation, He sees our unrighteousness, He sees our godlessness, our ungodliness, and he is not happy with the situation. He's not happy because it didn't have to be this way. God made creation good as an overflow of His own perfection and goodness, and He created us to share in that, and instead we went in the opposite direction. We rejected God and His purposes. God wanted better for us. He wanted us to know him. And yet Paul continues in chapter 1 verse 20 to say that God has made all of this clear to us just by looking at his creation. We look at a sunset or the stars in the sky. We look at freshly fallen snow. We hear the sound of a child laughing. And Paul would say we get a glimpse in that, that there is something more to this world than just us. We can see something about God's power and his nature, who he is and what he does in the world just by looking at the world around us and yet we've rejected it. We've gone our own way and the result has been destruction. We think we've figured it out on our own. We've progressed past the antiquated laws of God when in reality we are fooling ourselves. We've exchanged the truth of godliness for godlessness and God is not happy with that choice. His wrath is provoked when he sees the damage our godlessness causes to ourselves, to those around us, and to creation. And If you were faced with a situation where you wanted someone to do something and they had done the exact opposite thing time and time again, my guess is that there would come a point where you would give up. And yet that is not what our God does. Instead, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We had run away from God. We were under the rule and reign of the enemy. We had chosen to walk away from God's desire for our lives and for our world. Yet when faced with that reality, God did not reject us. He did not reject you. But he sent Jesus to die on our behalf. Something we never could have done for ourselves so that we might be brought back from our rebellion. And if that sounds to you like it is too good to be true, if that sounds like the exact opposite of what you would typically expect, I think Paul is right there with you as you look at how he reflects on that truth over the next couple verses. Because Jesus has done something that we could hardly conceive of a human being doing. Someone sacrificing their life for the life of someone else, is a surprising thing. I mean, it would seem to make front-page news automatically any time we hear about it happening, and yet what Jesus has done here goes far beyond the greatest story we could ever find by looking in the news or by looking at the stories of Hollywood. It is not one person sacrificing themselves for another person. It is a perfect person giving up their life for people who had done nothing to deserve it. And if that surprises us, it probably should. I mean, we can maybe conceive of someone giving up their life for someone else that they look up to, someone they consider righteous. We could maybe imagine someone being so bold as to give up their life for a good person. But Jesus didn't wait for us to get to the point of being considered good or righteous. The New Testament scholar Michael Byrd says, giving up your life to save Nelson Mandela is one thing, but who would take a bullet to save Adolf Hitler? And that might sound a little over the top, but that is the reality Paul is trying to get our heads around in these verses. Jesus died for us, even when we were at war against him, so that we could be reconciled. He did all this to demonstrate the love of God. We had wrecked God's good creation, and he was not happy with that, yet he did not leave things as they were. His perfect love won the day. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us if you have ever wondered if it could be possible for God to love you, the cross argues against you. When you had done nothing to earn the love of God, Jesus died on your behalf because of his perfect love. He's moved towards us so that we might be reconciled to him even when we were at war against him. And for that reason, we've been reconciled with God. We've been made right with God. And that changes everything about our existence right now and for all eternity. And Paul fleshes that out a little more in these next three verses. Picking up in verse 9, he says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Because of the words and the spaces that we've been looking at for the past few weeks, we can now work through what that means for us now and beyond. Because if Jesus has done all of this for us in the past, if he died for us even when we were ungodly, if he sacrificed himself for us even when we were in rebellion against him, then that begs the question of what must be in store for us now that he has brought us out of sin and death and into life with him. And Paul wants us to follow his line of thinking. Because if Jesus has done all of this while we were his enemy, what might he have in store for you now that you are in his family? If he could do all that while you were at war against him, what might he be able to do now that you're on his side? If he's done all that for us, why would we ever worry that he wouldn't care for us each and every day from here on out? If someone has already said they are mailing you a priceless gift with no strings attached, why would you ever wonder whether or not they were able to pay for the shipping? If someone's told you they're going to give you a brand new car, why would you worry about whether or not there's air in the tires? That's the significance of what Christ has done, and that is what it means as we look ahead to the life he has in store in the future. Jesus' death saved us from the punishment we deserve because of our rebellion. Because of what Jesus has done, we've been reconciled to God for life we've not just been saved from sin and death we've been saved to life with God and life with God is not just that you were headed for death but now Jesus has got you out of that it is you have been transferred from the side of sin and death and to the side of life with God you've not just been taken from the life you knew before you have been given a life that brings with it a completely different focus There's been peace in the battle that you were fighting against God, but now he's invited you to come and be a part of his kingdom and bring the peace of his rule and reign into places it has never been before. Maybe I'm just speaking about my own life, but I think we often sell what Jesus has done for us far too short. Because we make it about either the past or the future without thinking about the present. We look back and say, yeah, my life was a wreck before I knew Jesus and he showed up in my life and he fixed it and now everything's fine or, or yeah, sure, things are a mess right now but one day Jesus will return, one day I'll get to the end of my life and then everything will be healed, everything will be great and in the meantime, we don't think about the difference that it makes and those two truths are well and good as far as they go but they are not the entire story. Life that has been reconciled to God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus is eternal life that starts now there's a chance that I've told this story before but I'm not completely sure and if I'm not sure I'm pretty confident none of you are so I'll tell it again and we'll just see but a few summers ago I was on a retreat with some friends of mine that are in ministry at churches across the country and And we were closer to the height of COVID at that point, so we were sharing stories of both what we had experienced of doing church in the midst of COVID and stories we had heard across the country from other churches, from other friends and things. And and you know, if you watch the news at all, there was plenty of anger and division and strife amongst our nation and our churches during that time. And we were sharing these stories, and after a while, a friend of mine paused and he kind of sighed. He said, I I just thought the resurrection of Jesus would have made more of a difference. And that was a convicting statement for that particular situation and I have thought about it often in plenty of other situations in life as as well since then. Because what Jesus has done is the most life-altering truth we will ever encounter. Uh, He has brought us out of death, into eternal life with him, life with him that starts now, and so often we allow whatever is pressing in the moment to crowd the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus out. We settle for anxiety when the death and resurrection of Jesus says that he has come to bring us peace. We allow social media and news headlines to put us in a constant state of fear. Every day there's a new thing that's going to bring about the downfall of civilization when the death and resurrection of Jesus says that we are to be people who live with hope because we know that the story ends with our God making all things new. We allow bitterness to fester We hold on to slights made against us. We refuse to forgive when the death and resurrection of Jesus says we have done far more against God than anyone has ever done against us and yet he has done what was necessary to forgive us and for that reason we can do what is necessary to forgive as well. We hold on to anger when the death and resurrection of Jesus says that because of God's presence with us we can have joy. We live with sin and sure, we might, not know, we might know that it's not the best for us and we, and we do what we can, but we hold on to it because if nothing else, it's just easier to be content with what we know right now than to grow into who God wants us to be. And the death and resurrection of Jesus says sin leads to death and he has come to bring life. Jesus has done what is necessary to make us right with God. He reconciled us to bring peace when we were at war against him. He has done all that so we might have eternal life that starts now, as we experience the life he desires for us. When we experience that, we boast. Not in ourselves, but in God. Because of what Jesus has done. If you remember in the first few verses of this chapter that we looked at last week, Paul said, we boast in the hope of the glory of God, even in the face of suffering, because Jesus has made it so we can stand in grace. We do not boast in how great we are. We boast in the hope we have because of how good our God has been to us. And now Paul comes back around to that idea of boasting to say we boast in God because Jesus has brought us reconciliation. We celebrate, not because we've done anything, but because of what God has done for us. That is how we're able to boast. No matter what might come our way. When anxiety or fear or bitterness or anger or sin rears its head, we are not overcome by them. And we do not overcome them because of how good of people we are or because we've been taught some good coping skills somewhere along the way. We boast because of what our God has done for us in Jesus. He's reconciled us to him. That reconciliation means we have been delivered into life with our God and that is the foundation of everything about us he's reconciled us to himself, he's brought us into life with him, and that is the foundation of our past, present, and future. We've been made right with God even though we were guilty. We've been reconciled even though we were at war against him, and it's all because of Jesus. And that fact transforms everything about us as we look at what Christ has done, as we look at what he is doing now, and as we look at what he will do in the future. Christ has drawn us into his family through his reconciliation. and Because that's taken place in the past, we have confidence as we walk in a reconciled relationship with God. One that we have not earned, but one that Christ has made available to us because of what he's done. And we walk in that relationship in the present because it is the beginning of the eternal life God has in store for us. We've been reconciled. Jesus has ended the battle, but that is not the end of the story. We've been saved from the battle. We've been saved out of our rebellion against God, but it is so we can be a part of the solution. God is not just reconciling us to himself, but he desires to make all things right. He desires to reconcile all things, and that reconciliation that we experience as individuals before God is a little glimpse into what God wants to do with the entire world world god plans to take his reconciliation global we get an image of what that looks like in the old testament from the prophet isaiah in chapter 2 verse 4 he says he meaning god will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples when that happens they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train for war anymore There's a sculpture at the United Nations that gives a little image of what that might look like. This is the hope we have for the future. This is what it looks like when God brings peace and healing. The the reference is a little dated, but if you can, try to picture the scene because I think it's one of the most powerful images we find maybe anywhere in Scripture that a soldier would look around at what God has done to make all things new and he looks at his weapons of war His sword and his spear. Uh, He looks at weapons of death and destruction and he looks around and he realizes there's no need for them anymore. There's no use for them. There's no point to have a sword or a spear anymore because there's no more war. It is peace. It is reconciliation everywhere. And so he doesn't know what else to do. So he takes these weapons and he goes and makes them into farm equipment because that's a far better use for these resources. And that is what God desires to do. For each and every one of us, and for our world as a whole. The way to be a part of this future is to stop the battle, to be reconciled to the one we've been warring against. The first step to reconciliation is to put up our white flag and surrender to the one we've been at war against. Because God has already done everything that is necessary to end the battle, all He calls us to do is to surrender to be reconciled, and to be healed. Whoever you are, wherever you are this morning, come be a part of this image. Come have peace. Come have healing. Come have reconciliation. Put up your white flag so your sword can become a plow. Come be reconciled to God and have your past, present, and future transformed. Let's watch this video.
0: Imagine you are in a war, but you've been wounded and taken captive. In front and behind you are lines and lines of prisoners bound and marching toward their doom. But you can't see them, there is only darkness. All you can feel is the warm steel of the fetters and the dirt on your skin. All you can hear is the footsteps that are being forced by the clank of a chain. When all of a sudden, a new sound interferes. It's a song of a king whom the enemies fear. It's a feeling of hope that's deeper than skin. It's the words of a poet that speak of his win. It's a symphony of sound that matches the growing intrusion of light all around. The chains loose. The fetters fall. The darkness retreats. And when the light exposes what had been hidden, all that is left is a king, bound with our chains, our dirt, our darkness, led away, but only for a moment, until that light came roaring back, that song came streaming in. Those fetters, those chains, that darkness, left to bind that sin and shame. Sin, death, defeated. The light has overcome. Jesus is the king that leads us, and we follow him from our tombs to his home, not in chains, but hand in hand, back into fellowship with the creator, back into relationship with him. We have been reconciled.
1: Would you pray with me? God, we thank you, we praise you for what you've done in Christ. God, we thank you that one we enemies, you died for us, you did what was necessary to make us your family, to bring us into your kingdom. God, help us internalize that truth and all that that means, help us to be formed by it, help us to look at the truth, look at our world through the lens of that truth in every part of our, of our lives. May we be reconciled to you, and from that, extend your reconciliation into every part of our world, every part of the globe. May God call us in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. We hope that you were encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.